This session is entitled, Hearing from Heaven, How to Know the Voice of God. You hear people today all the time say, God has spoken to me. God told me such and such. God told me to tell you that you need to do such and such. A pastor, God told me to tell you that our church needs to go this direction. God told me this. God told me that. Have you ever heard that and it's made you wonder, what's wrong with me? You know, I, I don't hear God speak to me the way all these other people say that he speaks to them. Is there something wrong with me? Is there something wrong with my walk with the Lord? Do they have a closer walk with God than do I? Am I not even saved? So if you've ever had these questions, I hope that this next hour or so will be of help to you. So as we begin, we need to define a couple of terms. One is revelation. Revelation refers to God revealing new information that up until that point has been previously hidden. So God revealing something new. You hear people today say, oh, well, I got revelation on this. God gave me revelation on that. Uh, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Because God is not revealing anything new to anyone today. Now, what may have happened is illumination. This refers to the enabling work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of us as believers to help us to understand and to appropriate, to obey the truths already written in Scripture. So most all of us as Christians, we can think of various times when maybe we're reading a verse of Scripture, maybe we've read it a hundred or a thousand times before, but then all of a sudden what, what happens? Like, oh, you know, the light comes on. Like, oh, that's what that means. You know, now I get it. So that is illumination. And illumination should be a part of our lives as believers. So illumination, yes. Revelation, no. Now, as we get going, I want to just give you a little fair warning here. I'm going to show you some examples of a broad spectrum of popular Bible teachers. Some of them will be rank heretics and charlatans. Some of them, however, I would not call false teachers. I differ with them enthusiastically on this question that we're addressing here today, but I would not necessarily call them false teachers. Now, I wouldn't recommend them either. There's nobody in my seminar, this presentation, I would recommend. But um, I, would not, I would not call them objective false teachers. Um, so let me just, the, my point in showing you this broad spectrum is to show you how ubiquitous it is, uh, this belief that God should be speaking to us in a direct quotable sense outside of Scripture. It's not just the charismatics believe that. Almost everybody, almost every evangelical believes this. Now, the first example is a false teacher, Beth Moore. Beth Moore writes in her book, Praying God's Word, What little I know, I want others to know. Before God tells me a secret, He knows up front I'm going to tell it. By and large, that's our deal. That doesn't even make any sense. Before God tells you a secret, he knows up front you're going to tell it. So if it's a secret, I mean, if he knows you're going to tell it, how is it a secret? That doesn't even make any sense. But she says, by and large, that's our deal. You see, Beth Moore and the Alpha and Omega have their own little special deal going on between the two of them. You know, they got their own special little thing going on. You got your own special little thing going on with God? Well, if you don't, 
then you're just not as spiritual as Beth Moore is, you see. She writes in another one of her books, she says, I heard the voice of God speak to my heart, come and play. I love that he said, come, not go, come. That meant he was already there. I also love how I could tell by the sweet tone of his silent voice. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> sweet tone of a silent voice? What is a silent voice? And if the voice is silent, how does she know it has a tone to it, much less a sweet tone? That doesn't even make any sense. But I could tell by the sweet tone of his silent voice that he was smiling. I could have outlined his expression with my finger. Ooh. I mean, that's just creepy. You know, remember the lady in the last session? How I said so many of these popular female Bible teachers, they have a very romanticized view of Christ. Jesus is their boyfriend. She continues... I built a snowman. I laugh with God. He laughed with me. I am so in love with him. I am so in love with him. You see the romantic expressions, overtones? Jesus is her boyfriend. Unless you think, oh, well, it's maybe a little weird, but surely she doesn't really think of Jesus in romantic terms. She put this up last year. I'm growing grapes for reals. It's like a miracle. If Jesus is trying to get me to crush on him, it's working. What in the blue-eyed world? I mean, that's just gross. It's like she's a junior high girl with some crush on... You know. John MacArthur was right. Needs to go home. Watch this from Rick Warren. Last week, we began a new uh, mini-series on understanding how to hear the voice of God. Very few things are more important than this because you can't have a relationship to God if you can't hear God. If all you do is ever talk to Him in prayer, and you never hear God speak to you, that's a one-way relationship. That isn't much of a relationship. So if all you ever do is talk to God and you never hear Him talk to you, that's not much of a relationship. That's just a one-way relationship. So apparently, being able to hear the voice of God outside of Scripture is a vitally important part of our lives as Christians. I mean, if you don't hear God speak to you, you don't have much of a relationship with him. So the stakes are high, right? You better be getting this right. Priscilla Shire. Hi, I'm Priscilla Shire. And I'm hoping that you'll join me for a six-week journey as we talk about how we can hear and discern the voice of God in our lives. Do you really expect and anticipate that the divine voice of God can be heard by you? Do you really think that he loved you enough to die for you, but doesn't love you enough? Huh. Try that again. Hi, I'm Priscilla Shire, and I'm hoping that you'll join me for a six-week journey as we talk about how we can hear and discern the voice of God in our lives. Do you really expect and anticipate that the divine voice of God can be heard by you? Do you really think 
that he loved you enough to die for you, but doesn't love you enough to then talk to you is what she's supposed to say. So do you really think he loves you enough to die for you, but doesn't love you enough to talk to you? What does she think this is? I mean, honestly, what does she think this is? What an insult to the Word of God. Watch this from Charles Stanley. Now, yeah, I would not call Charles Stanley a false teacher, but neither would I endorse him on any level. Uh, watch this from Stanley. So you're, are you asking if God speaks specifically? And the answer is, yes, he does. Let me give you two or three examples. Speaking about buying groceries, on a particular day, I had a very short period of time, and so I wanted to buy a turkey for Thanksgiving. My time was really running out. I thought, well, I shouldn't do this now. I said, God, just show me what to do. It's like God said, go to this store, buy the turkey now. Against sort of my will, I went. I walked right in, straight to the right place, the right pound of turkey, walked right out, paid it, got back in the car in less than about 25 minutes. Did God tell me to go? Yes, he did. Such a close relationship has Charles Stanley with God that God even tells him where to go get his Thanksgiving Day turkey. <laughs> has God ever told you where to go get your Thanksgiving Day turkey? Well, if not, then you just don't have as close a relationship with God as does or did Charles Stanley. This was not a one-off with Charles Stanley, by the way. He said these kind of things regularly. In fact, later in the same clip, he said that God, he was looking for a car, looking about to buy a new car, and he was about to get one, sign the papers and everything on a new car, and right before he did, God spoke to him and said, do you want this car or do you want my best? And then based upon that, he went and he got a more expensive, nicer car so he could have God's best, you see. This from Sam Storms. Now, Sam Storms would agree with us as far as having a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation. He's Calvinistic, but he is a charismatic. Okay, He writes this, To be the recipient of prophetic revelation from God, whether in dreams, impressions, trances, visions, or words of knowledge and words of wisdom, can be nothing short of euphoric. The experience brings feelings of nearness to God, and a heightened sense of spiritual intimacy that isn't often the case with other of the charismata. So in other words, if you're one of these individuals and you get dreams, you get visions, maybe even trances, and God speaks to you regularly outside of Scripture, who knows, maybe you go back and forth to heaven every once in a while, then you're, you're a have. You're a have. But if you're one of these poor old souls and all you've got is the Bible and you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and maybe you have the, I don't know, maybe the gift of teaching or something like that, that's, you're a half-not. Sorry. You're just out of luck. You just don't have as close or an intimate relationship with God as these folks do. You know what that is, dear friends? That is a modern-day version of Gnosticism. Ancient heresy of Gnosticism. They believed in uh, two types of knowledge and to... To get the revelatory knowledge, you had to disengage your mind and just basically rely on feelings. And, and uh, they, so they divided Christians up into classes, the haves and the have-nots. So this is a modern-day version of the ancient heresy of Gnosticism. 
Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. I would submit to you that Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby is the resource that is singularly most responsible for introducing charismatic theology into at least theoretically non-charismatic circles. Experiencing God came out in 1991. Before 91, almost every non-charismatic evangelical would have understood that God speaks to us in the Bible, we speak to Him in prayer. Almost everyone would have understood that. Now, hardly anybody understands that. And this whole notion of God speaking to us outside of Scripture became prominent in non-charismatic churches with the advent of experiencing God. Blackaby says this, If you have trouble hearing God speak, you are in trouble at the very heart of your Christian experience. So again, the stakes are high. If you're having trouble hearing God speak to you, you're in trouble at the very heart of your Christian experience. Watch this from um, Sid Roth. Sid Roth very much is a false teacher. I want to show you. Now, this is an extreme example, to be sure, but nonetheless, uh, watch this. He's going to be talking about a man named Smith Wigglesworth. Smith Wigglesworth was a British charismatic preacher, faith healer, back in the early part of the 20th century, first half of the 20th century. And Smith Wigglesworth was known for punching people and kicking people because he claimed to have the ability to see demons attached to people. And if you were sick, it's because you had a demon attached to you. If you had cancer, you had the demon of cancer. If you had arthritis, you got the demon of arthritis. I suppose I had the demon of cerebral palsy. And so, but he had the ability to see these demons attached to people. And the only way to dislodge said demon, of course, is to punch it off or to kick it off. Just like we see Jesus and the apostles doing in the New Testament, right? <laughs> Watch this. He's going to talk about a story that supposedly happened in the life of Smith Wigglesworth. Hello, Sid Roth here. Welcome to my world where it's naturally supernatural. I have read of the great men and women of faith. One in particular intrigues me so much. His name, Smith Wigglesworth. He had some of the most outrageous miracles I ever heard of in my life. Uh, let me give you one example. Some parents had a two-month-old baby dying in the hospital. The parents kidnapped the child took the child to a Smith Wigglesworth meeting, and Smith looks at the child, looks at the parents, and says, can I do what God tells me to do? Well, what would you do if you were the parents? The child's dying anyway, right? He takes the baby, two-month-old, throws the baby against the wall. The baby. Then the baby's on the floor. He Have you ever seen someone play soccer? Have you ever seen them uh, kick a soccer ball? He does that with the baby. The baby falls into the congregation. No crying. Is it dead? 100% healed. No crying. Is that not shocking? Is that not shocking? 
unless you think there are not people in this world dumb enough to believe that, the very fact that he put it on his internationally broadcast television show, the very fact that this remains on his YouTube channel as we speak is self-evident inherent proof that there are people, plenty of people, dumb enough to believe something like this. And remember that one of the charismatic mantras that you hear all the time in this movement is this. What God does for one, He'll do for you. So someone is sitting at home and they're watching this, Sid Roth, and hearing this story about Smith Wigglesworth, one of God's generals, you know, great man of God. And they're watching this and they're thinking, my kid is sick. My neighbor's kid is sick. What God does for one, he'll do for you. In addition to the spiritual dangers of this movement, there are physical dangers to this movement. That is shocking. This is not, by the way, this is not the fringe of the charismatic movement. This is the mainstream. People think, oh, Justin just talks about the fringe of the charismatic No, 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 no. Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Sid Roth, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, Andrew Womack, Joseph Prince, Todd White. That's the mainstream of the charismatic movement. I'll tell you what the fringe is. The fringe of the charismatic movement is men like John Piper and Sam Storms and Wayne Grudem. That's the fringe. The mainstream is all this other stuff. But even with the fringe, even with the fringe, like Sam Storms has affirmed Benny Hinn as his brother in Christ. Benny Hinn. Sean Bowles you're tempted to say Bolts, but it's, he actually pronounces it Bowles. Sean Bowles is one of the most accurate of all of the prophets out there. He hears God speak to him with crystal clear clarity, with such clarity that God even gives him words of knowledge about people in his audience, specific information like their addresses and even their usernames and their, and their social media accounts. Now, I want to show you some clips and... Uh, Watch this as, Sid, as Sean Boltz calls out words of knowledge. And as you're watching this clip, there is a clue as you watch it to as, as to how Sean Boltz just might be hearing God speak. And, and there's a clue. So see if, you can, uh, see if you can pick up on it. One more username. I never get usernames, but I ask God for new information that I never get. Terry Bishop 911. Terry Bishop, you're working on the show and we're getting you. That is my uh, username, Terry Bishop 911. The Lord says, you live in a pleasant place. What does that mean to you? I live on Pleasant Hill. Come on. Sid Roth says that Sean Bowles is the most amazingly detailed prophet he has ever known. He has ministered to thousands, from royalty to people on the streets. Now he wants to share with you the secrets he has learned concerning the gift of prophecy and wants to activate you to do the same as he does. Call now and get Sean Bowles' brand new book, Translating God, and his anointed three-part audio CD teaching, Everyone Can Hear God's Voice, exclusive for our It's Supernatural audience. Yours for a donation of $35. 
So for a donation of $35, you too can learn how to hear Sean, uh, hear God speak to you. Now, did you pick up on the clue? God was speaking, and he was calling out people's usernames, and he's like, I mean, he's literally looking at his phone or his tablet, getting these words of knowledge from God. He's looking up people's social media accounts. That's what he's doing. And he's doing it in broad daylight, I mean, in front of everybody. False teachers are, you, you may be wondering, how can people be so dumb? False teachers are in and of themselves part of God's judgment. The time will come when people will no longer endure sound doctrine, but will heap to themselves teachers who tickle the ears. People won't endure sound doctrine. They want teachers to tell them what they want to hear, and God is giving them what they want. He, uh, Sean Bowles came out with a video a couple of years ago on his YouTube channel, and the title of it was The Three Biggest Blocks to Hearing God's Voice. The Three Biggest Blocks to Hearing God's Voice. I can tell you what the three biggest blocks to hearing God's voice is for Sean Bowles. <laughs> that trips Sean Bowles up more than anything else in hearing God speak to him. Bill Hybels wrote this book, The Power of a Whisper. Bill Hybels, up until a few years ago, was the pastor of um, uh, oh, Willow Creek, sorry, Willow Creek Community Church. And he was one of the early leaders in the seeker-sensitive movement. He, along with Rick Warren, two of the big powerhouses in the seeker-sensitive approach to doing church. So he wrote this book, The Power of a Whisper, How to Hear the Voice of God. He writes on page 17, he says... Without a hint of exaggeration, I can boldly declare that God's low-volume whispers have saved me from a life of sure boredom and self-destruction. Well, God speaking in Jeremiah 23, Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Does that sound boring to you? doesn't sound boring to me. And you might notice that I said that Bill Hybels was the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church. The reason he's no longer the pastor of Willow Creek Community Church is because he morally disqualified himself sexually from being the pastor. So much for those low-volume whispers that saved him from a life of boredom and self-destruction. Those low-volume whispers apparently didn't do the trick. But you know what could have? This could have done it. If he had just obeyed what was in this book, what was written in black and white, that would have saved him from a life of boredom and self-destruction. Low-volume whispers didn't do it. We hear this a lot. Prayer is a two-way street. Have you heard this? That uh, when we pray, you know, we talk to God, and then after we talk to God, we get real quiet, and we listen real hard. For him to talk back to us. Prayer is a two-way street. And so we hear this. And uh, I used to, and maybe some of you have done this, because I used to do it many years ago. And because uh, I just assumed it was true, prayer is a two-way street. And so I would go to the Lord in prayer, and I would talk to him. You know, Lord, this is what's going on in my life. You know, I don't really know what to do. And so I would get real quiet. 
and listen real hard. Just, Lord, speak to me. Tell me what to do. And then after a few seconds, inevitably, what happens? A thought, right? Just kind of, a thought just kind of goes through our minds and we think, oh, oh, was that you, Lord? <laughs> or was that me? You know, was that, was that God? That, or was that the pizza I ate tonight? I mean, how do you know? How do you know when it's God speaking to you? Let's watch this from Robert Morris. You know, if we said, we're going to have a class on prayer, you'd say, that's, that's, I need that. And even the disciples said, teach us to pray. But let me remind you that hearing God is the second half of prayer. Because if you can't hear God, why would you pray? Now, one reason is to make our requests and petitions be known to God. But God never intended prayer to be a giving of our to-do list to Him every morning. He intended prayer to be communication between a father and his children. And if you'll just take some time and start to listen, you'll be amazed that He'll speak. So you just need to take time to listen, and, and prayer is this two-way street, you know, you just listen real hard for God to speak to you. Dear friends, you won't find anything like that modeled in Scripture. Nowhere. Nowhere in the Bible, Old or New Testament, does it suggest that prayer is a two-way street. Nothing of the sort. In fact, if there was going to be a place in the Bible that describes prayer that way, the perfect place for it to be would be in Luke chapter 11. Because in Luke chapter 11, the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. Hey, the, the, the place is, is set, right? I mean, the ball is sitting on the prayer is a two-way street tee, waiting for Jesus to just knock it out of the park. Guys, so glad you asked that question. That, that's such a good question. So here's how you pray. You talk to God and you get real quiet. You listen real hard for him to talk back to you. Is that what he said? No, of course not. Nothing of the sort. He said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name. Nothing at all about prayer being a two-way street. He said nothing of the sort. Perfect opportunity for him to do it. And he said nothing of the sort. So much for prayer being a two-way street. So since we popped that balloon... Let's pop another one. Well, what about the still, small voice? I mean, God speaks to us in a still, small voice, right? Beth Moore says, There's a time to give up and a time to keep trying. Sometimes the time to keep trying feels a whole lot like the time to give up. The only difference is the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit within you saying, Try again. This is just one of thousands of examples we could give of popular Bible teachers talking about how God speaks to us in the still, small voice. We should hear that, still, small voice. Well, is that biblical? It's biblical in the sense that it's in the Bible, but it's only in one place in the Bible, and that phraseology, still, small voice, it's only in one translation, the King James. If you're not reading the King James Bible, you're not going to see that wording, still small voice. But let's look at it. It is found in 1 Kings chapter 
19. This is the story of Elijah. This is right after Elijah called down fire from heaven. You remember that story? Destroyed the false prophets of Baal and their altars and sacrifices. Dramatic scene. Their dramatic victory. And then right after that, Jezebel threatened Elijah's life and he got scared. Must have been someone. I mean, after such a dramatic victory, and then Jezebel, and he got out of Dodge. But he fled into the wilderness and he ended up in the back of a cave. This is where the story picks up. Verse 11. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks. This is again, King James English. Before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the, earth, after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So there it is. It's only in one place in the entire Bible, and it's got to be in the King James. But what was this still small voice? Was it some inner impression inside of his head? No, it wasn't. Look at the next verse. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him, and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? So you see, dear friends, this still small voice was not some inner impression inside of his head. It was not internal. It was external. It was not subjective. It was an external, audible voice. Just like you are hearing my voice right now externally and audibly to you. The text said that Elijah wrapped his face in his mantle and went out to the entrance of the cave so he could hear this voice more clearly that was coming from outside of the cave, not inside his head. So can we please do away with the whole still small voice thing? It's not biblical. It's something that's been completely taken out of context and turned into something it never was in the first place. And another thing is to, to take a text like this one of the fundamental problems that charismatics and, and indeed so many people make, one of the fundamental mistakes they make in hermeneutics is they believe that everything that is described in the Bible should be prescribed in the Bible. Dear friends, there's a lot of things that are described that are not prescribed. God describes a parting Red Sea. I haven't seen any parting seas lately. God, uh, the Bible describes... A floating axe head. Have you ever seen a floating axe head? I haven't either. God, uh, the Bible describes talking donkeys. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen a talking donkey. I hope you haven't either. <laughs> if you have, you probably need to lay off the suds a little bit. <laughs> so there's lots of things that are described that are not prescribed. This is something that is described, not prescribed. And they even, people today even get the description wrong. It wasn't inside of his head, it was outside. Well, since we popped that balloon, let's pop another one. What about my sheep hear my voice? I mean, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. That's, I know that's in the Bible. So we should be hearing the voice of God. The voice of Jesus, the shepherd. We're your sheep. We should hear his voice, right? Watch this. All right. So John chapter 10, look at verse 1. We're talking about we're sheep and we can hear God. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, now watch this carefully, and the sheep, watch, hear his voice. Okay, can you just say those three words? Hear his voice. It's so John 10, 27 to me is the most concise and comprehensive verse in scripture about hearing God. Uh, it is when Jesus says, my sheep, hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. Bada boom, bada bing. I mean, you can't argue with that. It's right there in the text, right? Well, indeed it is. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. But is that the proper context? No, it's not. Let's look at the full context, and all we really need to do to see the full context is just to back up one verse. Just go up one verse, verse 26. Jesus says to the religious leader, the leaders, the Pharisees, but you do not believe. Why? Because you're not of my sheep. So we see from verse 26 that something much bigger than just hearing God speak to you on some regular occasion is at play here. Jesus says you do not believe. This is talking about salvation. You do not believe. Why do you not believe? Because you're not smart enough to figure it out? No, you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And look at verse 28. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Dear friends, this is not talking about God whispering to you, on a regular daily basis telling you where to go to have lunch one day or to take a right turn instead of a left turn like you normally do at this intersection or something like that. This is talking about salvation. This is regeneration. This is the new birth. This is the effectual call of the gospel. Christian, what were you before you became a Christian? Were you a sheep or were you a goat? Goat, sheep, sheep, goat. You are a sheep. You were just a lost sheep. A lost sheep who had not yet been called to the shepherd. You see, when a person gets saved, that's not a goat turning into a sheep. Goats don't turn into sheep. Sheep don't turn into goats. Before our conversion, we were lost sheep out there in the pasture of life with our heads down, grazing, minding our own business. But then one day we hear a voice. We hear someone call us, as it were, by name. And we perk our heads up and we see the shepherd and we go to him in salvation. This is salvation. This is regeneration. This is the effectual call of the gospel. This is a Beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. And what a terrible trivialization to reduce it down to something so menial as God whispering to us inside of our noggins in some still small voice to tell us where to go to have lunch. And look at verse 29. 
my Father who has given them to me. Christian, do you know what you are? You are a gift given by the Father to the Son. When did this happen? When did the Father give us to the Son? At our conversion? No. In eternity past, from before the foundation of the world, we were given as love gifts from the Father to the Son. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture. And then look at what Jesus says in verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In verse 28, we see that Jesus gives us eternal life. We are held in His hand, in His strong hand. And as if His hand were not strong enough, and it is, but in verse 29, He says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So Jesus holds us in His hand, and then He takes the hand of the Father, as it were, and wraps it around that of His own. And friends, ain't nobody getting out of that. If you've ever worried or wondered about eternal security, whether or not you could lose your salvation, spend some time in John chapter 10. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture. And what a terrible trivialization to reduce it to something so meaningless. Is God whispering to you inside your head, telling you where to go to have lunch or to take a right turn instead of a left turn? Dear friends, I'm going to say something. It may sound harsh, but I mean it. If you're listening to some preacher or reading some preacher, and that is the meaning that he gets out of John 10, 27, God whispering to you inside your head on a regular basis, if that is how he interprets John 10, 27, that person, man or woman, which one shouldn't be preaching anyway, but that's a, another issue. But that person, if that's their understanding of John chapter 10, that person has no business teaching the Bible. None. You don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand John chapter 10. I mean, just read it in English. It's abundantly clear. That person has no business teaching the Bible at all. Uh-oh. Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. This is the hottest selling devotional book on the market. It is light years ahead of everything else out there. It has sold, I think now, over right at 50 million copies. I mean, it just like exploded. It, it, nothing else is even close to it. And anytime something kind of breaks out in the Christian publishing world and sells a lot of copies, there's always these spinoffs. And so now there's all kinds of spinoffs of Jesus Calling. There's, now there's Jesus Calling Teenagers, Jesus Calling Moms, Jesus Calling Firefighters. You know, I'm, I'm waiting for Jesus Calling Little White Cripple Boys so I, can, so, I, so I can find out what Jesus wants to say to me. You know. But um, this, is, uh, this is no ordinary devotional book. This is... Sarah Young writes about how this book came about. Now, I'm showing you this is copied and pasted directly from her introduction. She says, During the same year, in 92, I began reading God Calling, 
a devotional book by two anonymous listeners. These women practiced waiting quietly in God's presence, pencils and papers in hand, recording the messages they received from him. So God Calling is a book that was written back in the 1930s by two anonymous female mystics. We don't even know their names. Uh, but they wanted to hear the voice of God, and so they practiced and practiced and practiced. And it's like when they finally, they finally tuned in to just the right frequency, and when they hit just the right frequency, God began calling them, and they began to write down what he was saying. This was the inspiration for Sarah Young to write Jesus Calling. She says, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. You see, the Bible just was not enough for Sarah Young. And sadly, it's not enough for most professing Christians today. It's not that Sarah Young is denying that the Bible is the Word of God. No, no, she would never say that. But it's not enough for her. It wasn't enough for her, and it's not enough for most people today. Here's my question. For anyone who would say the Bible is not enough, have you completely mastered this book? From cover to cover, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, have you squeezed every drop of truth? There is to be squeezed from these pages. You have mastered it start to finish, cover to cover. There's nothing else you can learn. If the answer to that question is no, and it is, because none of us has done that. Every person in this room, friends, we could spend a thousand lifetimes studying this book and just scratch the surface of what's in it. So if the answer to that question is no, please don't tell me the Bible's not enough. You don't even understand what you have in black and white right in front of you. But it wasn't enough for her. She says, I decided to listen to God with pen in hand, writing down whatever I believed he was saying. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Just like the ladies who wrote God Calling, and they began to write down what he said, Sarah Young tuned in to just the right frequency, and when she hit just the right frequency, Jesus started calling her, and she says, with pen in hand, I began to write down what he was saying. And when you read these devotionals, 365 of them, they're all written in the first person for Jesus. I, Jesus, will do such and such. I am this. I am that. They're all written in the first person for Jesus. If that is what is happening, if Jesus is really calling Sarah Young and she's writing down what he's saying, you know what she's doing? She's writing Scripture. That's what she's doing. She's writing Scripture. And dear friends, what we say about Sarah Young and what she's claiming, logically, must also be said whenever someone says, God spoke to me and he said, quote, da-da-da-da-da, because whatever God says carries with it divine authority. God cannot speak less authoritatively on one occasion than he does on another. Dear friends, if God is speaking, God is speaking. God cannot speak in the Bible and really, really, really mean it. But when he speaks to us today outside of the Bible, you know, in these still small voices, he still means it, but he doesn't mean it quite as much as he meant it here. How does that work? He just kind of means it? Mostly means it? Sort of means it? Does he have his fingers crossed? I mean, how, how does that work? Friends, if God is speaking, God is speaking. 
Watch this, for, or let me show you this rather from Beth Moore. In her book, When Godly People Do Ungodly Things, she says, I am being as honest as I know how to be when I say that I did not write these pages by simple preference. I wrote them because had I not, the rocks in my yard would have cried out. Nothing like applying that verse to yourself. What God does with what He has promised is His business. I entrust this message entirely to the one who delivered it while I sat bug-eyed. So Beth Moore apparently was just this passive recipient. God began to download information to her. And she just sat there bug-eyed as he did it. And she began to write down what he was saying. If that's what's happening, then you know what? That book, When Godly People Do Ungodly Things, that's canon. That, that's scripture right there. So we should add that to this book. And any time someone says, God spoke to me and said, da-da-da-da-da, whatever God is saying, you know what? We should add that to this book. There's just one problem with that. This book says, do not add to this book. Watch this from Matt Chandler. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call Matt Chandler a false teacher, but I would not recommend him either for a number of reasons. But watch this. So let's talk about what prophecy is and what prophecy isn't. Um, the thus saith the Lord, look right at me, is over. Look at me. When this text is talking about prophecy, it's not talking about the way Jeremiah prophesied or Isaiah prophesied. Or, no, no, that, that's closed. That's canonized. So you will never prophesy in a way that's on par, equal to, anywhere near the inerrant, infallible word of God. That's closed, shut. And so the best you've got, the best you've got is the humility to say, I think the Lord would have me lay this before you. So Matt Chandler says that when God speaks to you, you know, he says it's not, it's not on the same ca uh, level as Isaiah or Jeremiah. He says, no, that's, that's canonized. Now, we just talked about that. You can't, you can't make that distinction. If God is speaking, God is speaking. He can't speak less authoritatively on one occasion than he does on another. But then he said, he said the best we've got, the best we've got is to say, I think the Lord would have me to say such and such. You know, I really believe the Lord is trying to tell us, said nobody in the Bible ever. <laughs> I really feel like the Lord, no. If you have to wonder whether or not God spoke to you, He didn't. Okay? If you have to wonder whether or not God spoke to you, He didn't. God doesn't stutter. I just really feel like the Lord said to me, "That's you, if you were to take the word feel out of the vocabulary of charismatics, they couldn't communicate. <laughs> I kid you not. They could not communicate. I don't think they could tell you what time it is without saying, I feel like it's 219. Every, listen to them. Listen to them over and over and over and over and over and over. I feel like, I feel like, I feel like. I don't care what you feel like. 
I want to know what does the Word say? The Word of the Lord came to Abram. The Word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The Word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The Word of the Lord came to Elijah. In the New Testament, when the Holy Spirit spoke, He spoke with crystal clear clarity. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Crystal clear. Nowhere, Old or New Testament, will you find anyone saying, I really feel like the Lord is trying to... No, for one thing, the Lord doesn't try. The Lord doesn't try to do anything. He just does. The Lord speaks with crystal clear clarity. So, how does God speak to us today? Well, let's go to the text. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. The writer of Hebrews says that in the old days, in the Old Testament, God spoke in a lot of different ways. Indeed, God spoke in many portions and in many ways. He spoke to Moses at the burning bush. He spoke to Moses up on the mountain through a storm and thunder. He spoke to Elijah through that still, small voice. Numbers chapter 22, God made a donkey talk. God spoke in dreams. He spoke in visions. Many different portions and in many different ways. But in these last days, says the writer of Hebrews, He has spoken in His Son. Friends, Jesus is the final speaking of God. The final speaking of God. Everything that God has to say to us, He has said in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we have a perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient record of that in His Word. Jesus is the final speaking of God. And you may be wondering, well, if that is the case, then, uh, then what do you do with examples like this? Maybe you've heard someone say something like this, or maybe you've had an experience something like this. Uh, you know, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning for some reason, wide awake, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was thinking about my friend, and I just had this strong impression and burden to pray for my friend. So I started praying for my friend at 3 o'clock in the morning. And then the next day I wake up and I get a phone call and I find out that my friend was in a car accident at 3 o'clock in the morning. How do you explain that? You know, we've heard variations of stories like that. How do you, how do you explain? What do you do with that? Well, I would say a couple of things. One, I can't exegete an experience we can't exegete experiences. All we can do is exegete Scripture. But I would also say that it's not just Christians that report these kinds of unusual things. Probably most of us, if not all of us in this room, can think of things, of unusual things that have happened you know, in our lives. We have difficulty explaining, right? Whatever it was, you know, was it God that woke you up? I very well may have been. Um, could he have put that desire in your heart to pray for your friend? Possibly. Um, I mean, he could. Was it God? I don't know. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. Um, I give this example a lot of times. I grew up in Mississippi. I live in Montana now. 
And uh, one of my best childhood friends is a guy named Chad Stewart. And um, Chad's still in Mississippi. I'm almost 2,000 miles away in Montana. And so I hardly ever see Chad anymore. But, you know, I think about Chad, and, and uh, from time to time I'll pray for Chad. You know, if he comes to my memory or remembrance, I think about him, you know, I, I may say a prayer for Chad. Is that God bringing Chad to my remembrance? I don't know. Maybe I just thought about Chad. I mean, who knows? Can God put something in our minds or someone in our, you know, give us a burden for someone, that kind of lingo? Sure, he can. But we don't have a mechanism to know whether or not God's doing that. We just It's not like we've got the spiritual equivalent of the bat phone inside of our heads. And, you know, and when it's God, it starts flashing red. And like, oh, oh, yeah, thank you, Lord. I know that's you. Appreciate that. We don't have that. So I don't know. So how do I explain being awakened at 3 o'clock in the morning, praying for your friend who had a car? Whatever it was, whatever it was, it was a kind providence of God. It's a kind providence of God. I think that's all we can say about it. I think that's all we should say about it. I don't know. Kind providence of God. I want to bring your attention to this passage as we consider experiences. Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when we received, for, excuse me, for when He received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. This is a reference, of course, to the transfiguration of Christ. Peter, James, and John were with Jesus, Matthew 17. And then all of a sudden, in front of their witness, Jesus was transfigured before them. Moses on one side, Elijah on the other. In that pre-incarnate glory that Jesus had with the Father from before the foundation of the world was, was shown to them. That veil of flesh was lifted a bit, and they could see him transfigured in front of them. Now, you want to talk about an experience. That's an experience. That's an experience. But look at what Peter says next. For we have the prophetic word made more sure, made more certain. What is this prophetic word that Peter is talking about that is made more certain even than that? This. The scriptures. That's what he's referring to. The prophetic word. The scriptures are more certain even than that. Dear friends, I don't doubt that you've had an experience. I've had experiences too. But I don't care what you or I think we may have experienced. I can guarantee you one thing. It doesn't hold a candle to that experience. And if Peter could say the prophetic word is more certain even than what they experienced, I assure you, this is more certain than anything you and I think we've experienced. Well, how do you, you know, if God only speaks to us in the Bible, how do we, how do we know God's will for our lives? You know, the Bible doesn't tell me where I should go to college or if I should go to college. The Bible doesn't tell me if I should be a plumber or an accountant or a truck driver or a 
physician? You know, how, how do I know God's will for my life? The Bible doesn't tell me where to live. How do I know God's will for my life? Here's how you know God's will for your life. Number one, read, study, and obey God's word. Read, study, and obey God's word. If you're not doing that, then nothing else matters anyway. Read, study, and obey God's word. But then if you've got some big decision that you need to make and you're not sure what to do, well, pray for wisdom. Pray for wisdom. The Bible says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he will give it to you liberally in abundance. Pray for wisdom. Now, if you're not reading, studying, and obeying God's word, don't bother praying for wisdom. God's not going to give it to you. But if you are, pray for wisdom. And then, seek wise, godly counsel. The Bible says that there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And you know what? I've got some people in my life that I do that with. If I've, I've got something that comes up in my life or my ministry and I'm not sure what to do, then the first person that I'm going to go to is named Kathy. It's my wife. She and I are going to talk about it. And if we both decide that, you know, we probably need some more eyes on this, then I've got some men in my life that I'll go to men that I trust are walking with the Lord, and I'll say, brothers, this is what's going on. This is the situation, the decision I've got to make. What is your counsel? And you know what? That has served me well in doing that. There's wisdom in doing that. So read, study, and obey God's Word. Pray for wisdom. Seek wise, godly counsel. And then Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 it. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. and In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He might direct your paths. He'll direct your paths if He's got nothing better to do. He will direct your paths. How does God do that? I don't have the foggiest idea how He does it. I just know He does. Friends, He spoke the universe into existence. I think He can direct our paths. You don't have to worry, oh, if I... You know, if I, make, if I choose this job, uh, but God really wanted me to take this one over here, uh, then everything's just going to fall apart and collapse and, you know, like a house of cards and, and my life's just going to be a disaster. No. Relax. Relax. He spoke the universe into existence. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He can take care of your situation. Just make a wise decision and do something. It's interesting, even in the New Testament, when we read in the, in the apostolic age, when the apostles were still there, still teaching, still getting new revelation, even then, you don't see the apostles praying for things like, Lord, show me your specific individual will for my life. You don't see them praying things like that. What do you see them doing? Well, you just see them doing stuff. For example, Paul said, I have decided to spend the winter at Nicopolis. Why did Paul spend the winter at Nicopolis? Because he prayed for God to show him where to spend. No, he just decided to spend the winter at Nicopolis, so he spent the winter at Nicopolis. He just did stuff. Paul stayed in Athens by himself and sent Timothy because we thought it best. We thought it best to do that, so we did it. So, dear friends, just do stuff. I mean, read, study, and obey God's Word. And if you need to, pray for wisdom. Pray for, we'll always pray for wisdom, but seek godly counsel and then just do.
do stuff. Relax. God will direct your paths in ways that only He can, but He will. He will. Have you ever... Here's a question I would have for everyone who would believe. You know, the, there are hundreds if not thousands of books that have been written on how to hear the voice of God. Five steps to hear God's voice. Ten steps. You know, do this, do that. I've always wondered, what does God sound like? What does, what does He sound like exactly? You know, does He sound like Charlton Heston? Does He sound... What, what does God sound like? But, but here's a question I would have. If hearing the voice of God is so vitally important for us as believers, and we've got to read all these books on, to learn how to do it, why is it that the Bible does not offer us one syllable of instruction on how to hear His voice? Have you ever thought about that? Think about what we have in the New Testament. We have the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. An account of the life, ministry, teachings, death and resurrection of Jesus. What do we have in the book of Acts? Well, we've got the birth of the church and the spread of the gospel. We've got church structure and polity and all these things. We've got, um, you know, the birth of deacons and elders and all that. What do we have in the pastoral epistles? Well, we've got loads of doctrine and theology and instruction on elder qualifications and how to resolve conflicts amongst elders, even how to deal with sinning elders We've got eschatology in Revelation and eschatology scattered out through all, all the New Testament. We've got all these loads and loads and loads of instruction on doctrine, theology, how to organize churches and qualifications for elders and all these things. And yet, on this one thing that is so vitally important apparently for us to know how to do, how to hear the voice of God, no instruction, not a syllable of instruction. Does that make any sense? No. There are no instructions on how to hear God's voice in the Bible for two main reasons. Number one, if God was speaking today, you'd know it. Number two, God has already spoken to us in His Word. That's how God speaks to us. If you'd like to do a deep dive on this issue, how to hear the voice of God, how to know God's voice, I want to commend to you again. This is another book by Jim Osmond, same website, jimosmond.com. A deep, deep dive on this issue. He leaves no rock unturned. Excellent, excellent book. I want to close this session with a, a bit of a lengthy quote from Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon says this, Honor the Spirit of God as you, would choose, as you would honor Jesus Christ if He were present. If Jesus Christ were dwelling in your house, you would not ignore Him. You would not go about your business as if He were not there. Do not ignore the presence of the Holy Spirit in your soul. To Him pay your constant adorations. Reverence the august guest who has been pleased to make your body a sacred abode. Love Him, obey Him, worship Him. Take care never to impute the vain imaginings of your fancy to Him. I have seen the Spirit of God shamefully dishonored by persons, I hope they were insane, who have said that they have had this and that revealed to them. There has not for some years passed over my head a single week 
in which I have not been pestered with the revelations of hypocrites or maniacs. Semi-lunatics are very fond of coming with messages from the Lord to me, and it may save them some trouble if I tell them once and for all that I will have none of your stupid messages. Never dream that events are revealed to you by heaven, or you may come to be like those idiots who dare impute their blatant follies to the Holy Spirit. If you feel your tongue itch to talk nonsense, trace it to the devil, not to the Spirit of God. Whatever is to be revealed by the Spirit to any of us is in the Word of God already. He adds nothing to the Bible and never will. Let persons who have revelations of this or that and the other go to bed and wake up in their senses. I only wish they would follow the advice and no longer insult the Holy Spirit by laying their nonsense at His door. Indeed. Indeed. Dear friends, if you want to hear God speak to you, there's one way I guarantee you, you will hear God speak. Read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak to you audibly, read it out loud. 100% guaranteed, you will hear Him speak. That is how God speaks. Uh, as I close, I want to just briefly say something about resources that I have on the, on the table out there. I've got the seminar, Clouds Without Water, on this DVD set. Uh, there's two discs in here. There's uh, about eight hours of teaching material in here. Video clips, my commentary and all that. So uh, Clouds Without Water is on this DVD set. And then I've written this little book entitled Santa Paws, uh, a theological critique of Santa. may not seem like a big deal, but Santa, um, if you think, think it through logically and biblically mainly, um, Santa has a lot of God's attributes. You know, he's in effect omnis uh, omnipresent. He goes around the world in one night. Um, he's omniscient. He knows if you've been sleeping. He knows if you're awake, <laughs> which is really creepy. But he's He's got so he's eternal. He never dies, so he's just always there. He looks an awful lot like God, doesn't? He? So um, some things to consider in this little book entitled Santa Paul's, and then uh, there's this book that I've written. This is entitled Do Not Hinder Them: A Biblical Examination of Childhood Conversion. Some of the precautions that we need to take with children before we baptize them. Uh, just because your child has made intellectual assent to a few basics of the gospel does not necessarily mean that child is ready to be baptized. Does not mean that conversion has taken place. And of course, this is written from a pedo-baptistic standpoint. Um, believer's baptism. What did I say, pedo? Oh, Freudian slip. Credo, credo-baptism. Thank you. <laughs> like, you know, throw this book away. Uh, Credo Baptist. <laughs> so we have we have baptized untold millions of children who are not converted just because they've made intellectual assent to a few basic gospel facts. I shudder to think about how many millions upon millions of children have been baptized at vacation Bible school just because their friend is Ask Jesus into their heart, and they want to do the same thing. A child, a child will adopt the worldview in which he or she is raised. That's just the nature of children. We're baptizing kids five, six, seven, eight years old 
We're baptizing children whose intellectual capacity allows for the belief in a fat man in a red suit who is pulled all around the world on a sled by a team of flying reindeer. And we're going to trust those same children to, to wrestle with sin, repentance, eternity, denial of self. There's a, there's a disconnect there. So how do you know when conversion has truly taken place in the life of your child? Um, so things to look for. So that's what this book is about. And, uh, and then I have some t-shirts and bumper stickers out there. Newsletters, those newsletters on the table are free. So anyway, those are some of the resources I have.